Well, we had a, a good evening last Sunday, it seems, a long way away for some reason, but uh, the last Sunday of the year when we had our testimony uh, evening and some of the, the fellowship were sharing uh, God's grace in their lives. And uh, most of the folk that were sharing were looking back from the vantage point of uh, many years uh, serving the Lord and able to speak of his ongoing mercy in keeping and preserving them. And we rejoice in that. It's wonderful uh, to, to see people grow up in the faith to go on with the Lord. Uh, sometimes uh, there's almost a sense in which that's as thrilling as the initial uh, joy of conversion itself. Uh, it was Chris who spoke about the uh, work of God in his heart, uh, leading him away from the, the false teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, who deny, of course, that Jesus is God uh, and drawn to embrace genuine salvation through the true Christ who is revealed in the Gospel. For there is no other Christ than the Christ revealed in the Scriptures who is the Son of God and Son of Man. And that was wonderful. But it put me in mind of another Chris that I knew years back whose story actually went in the other direction. We'd been in school together and he had been an enthusiastic member of the, the Scripture Union group and he had been one of those of us who joined together to pray uh, before school began. And one day uh, <clears throat> after we'd left school he turned up at our house whilst he was on a camping holiday with some friends. And it was good to see him, but as we were speaking, I knew that there was something on his mind that he wanted to, to talk about. And when the opportune moment came, uh, it all uh, came blurted out. He had turned his back on the Christian faith. Uh, there had been a period in his life when uh, he had stopped going to church, and nobody had really picked up on that in the church fellowship and then when some Jehovah's Witnesses came uh, doing their rounds and knocked on his door and showed interest in him, he joined them. And it was really tragic uh, to hear his story. I can still feel some of the, the, uh, the, the, the pathos as he recounted that. And as we go on in the Christian life, uh, as all of us go on, we encounter these instances of people who made shipwreck of the faith, who seemed to be uh, Christians on their way to heaven and turned out not to be so. And we wonder what's going on. Because the Bible teaches that true Christians will not ultimately perish. And there are myriad uh, verses in the Bible which teach this truth. Uh, we call it the perseverance of the saints. It's one of the, the teachings of our confession. Uh, for example, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's a wonderful verse and it's been a very precious verse to me uh, in the past. Uh, again, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. And there are 
loads more. These are but the tip of the iceberg, which declare that God keeps his people. You know, we, the five points of Calvinism uh, have the, the P, it's perseverance of the saints, but it's actually better phrased uh, the perseverance of God with the saints. Because it's not so much we who uh, persevere as Christians, but it's God who perseveres with us. Were it not for his keeping grace, we would fall away. In all of this confusing picture, one of the important things to bear in mind is the distinction that there is between being inoculated with Christianity, having uh, just enough uh, to vaccinate you against the real thing and actually being transformed by the gospel. You can be brought up in a Christian home, uh, as many of us are. You can have all of the advantages of uh, public worship, teaching of the gospel, Bible teaching. You can merge in with the crowd at worship on Sunday, but unless this Holy Spirit of God has changed you, brought about the new birth, shaped and formed your life, then uh, the bottom line is that you're not a believer. Not converted. And the promise of persevering is not yours. And in actual practice, we're to hold to this doctrine, the perseverance of God with the saints, with great humility. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. This is not a doctrine that encourages complacency. Uh, the way to heaven is a narrow road flanked with warning signs on either side. Beware, danger, narrow road. Keep looking straight ahead. Satan is active. Satan wants to devour us. And only by God's grace are we kept on this road. The Bible repeatedly teaches that uh, God's sovereignty, God's uh, initiative uh, in salvation, uh, does not rule out our own responsibility in working out that salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we're urged. And there's lots of examples in Scripture of this. Here, here's, um, to my mind, quite an interesting one. Uh, it's to do with uh, working in the Word. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says to Timothy, uh, his young son in the faith, fellow preacher, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Reflect on what you're saying, on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all this. So here's a precious promise for every preacher, young and old. A promise that the Lord will grant insight. But notice, uh, Paul does not say, reflect on what I'm saying and eventually you will understand. Nor does he say, the Lord will give you understanding on all these matters. But what he does say is, Reflect on what I am saying. And what Paul is saying is scripture, of course. So reflect on the scripture. Do the hard work of meditating on the Bible. See how it relates to other parts of the Bible. 
and the Lord will give you insight. It's not either the one or the other. It's, it's not uh, that uh, in, in the case of the preacher, it's not a case of, of uh, uh, going to your study with a, an empty uh, notebook and an open Bible. God will simply uh, download the sermon for the coming Sunday uh, into your mind. The promises do the work of reflecting in the Bible. God will give you insight. Human responsibility and divine activity. The writer to the Hebrews uh, is urging on us our responsibility to use the means of grace to heed the warnings that God gives us, which will be part of God's way of working out his end that his people will be brought safely home. He's been showing the supremacy of Jesus over the prophets, over angels, and most recently over Moses in the Old Testament. And now he's pressing on the readers the inevitable consequences of the unique supremacy of Jesus. If Jesus is so great, if he is supreme, then it follows that you must give him your absolute trust and your complete commitment. Nothing less will do. There's a danger that they may fall away and fail to enter God's rest. And to illustrate that, he, he cites the time when Israel... Uh, were taken out of Egypt. But barring men like Joshua and Caleb, they failed to complete the journey and they came under God's wrath. Let's look at dangerous behaviour. Consequences of dangerous behaviour and the remedy that God provides. The exodus from Egypt and the journey uh, through the wilderness to the promised land uh, has been used typologically uh, by Christians down through the, the years. And it's used a lot in hymnody as well. Uh, you know, crossing over the Jordan. Uh, Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. And sometimes when you take the, the Bible and, and re- invest the histories with spiritual meanings you can be on kind of shaky ground you can sometimes overdo this but we're on very solid ground here because this is how the bible itself treats the history of israel's uh, exodus not only does uh, the writer to the hebrews treat the wilderness wandering as a parallel with the journey of the believer jesus himself spoke about the exodus that he was going to bring about in Jerusalem when he spoke with Elijah and Moses in the Mount of Transfiguration. And Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, takes the same approach to the journey of the Israelites as the writer to the Hebrews does. Uh, He uses it as a warning to be vigilant in the Christian life. Uh, He writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea, They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So, 
Here is Paul using the same history as a warning that it's possible to be part of the crowd, but not to be a genuine believer who perseveres and enters God's rest. Here, uh, the writer to the Hebrews uses Psalm 95 uh, as his starting point, uh, the, the warning that's given in Psalm 95. And it's amazing, if you look at chapters 3 and 4, you see it's repeatedly uh, referred to, in fact, the same verses from Psalm 95. And the introduction in verse 7 is intensely interesting. He says, So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice. Here's the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of Holy Scripture. What the Bible says, the Holy Spirit says. It is the Holy Spirit speaking uh, in the original words of the psalmist, and it is the Holy Spirit speaking to us today, addressing us in the today of our experience. And there are huge implications of that. Because what God says is invariably true, and therefore we have the inerrancy of of the the scripture, and also invariably relevant. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the now of our experience. This is, the the Bible's not some kind of book that you would uh, reflect on in a museum. It's not a museum piece. It doesn't have antiquarian value only. Uh, It's vitally relevant to us. Uh, And here is what is essentially a worked example of what Paul is going to cite later in chapter 4 when he says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And this scripture, uh, speaking about the desert wanderings, is warning us today against hardening our hearts. Now, of course... That's got nothing to do with the the, uh, implications, the consequences of the kind of diets that uh, many of us have been uh, lapsing into over the last couple of weeks. Uh, It's to do with the the controlling centre of our personality, the heart. It's conceived of as the the agency of the emotions and the will. A good heart or a tender heart, a soft heart, It's responsive to the word of God. The heart that the Lord is looking for is a heart that will grieve over sin. It's not impervious to sin. It's sensitive to sin, responds to sin. Hard heart is no such feeling towards God. But a heart that was tender can get hardened, hence the warning against our hearts being hardened. And if in you know, ordinary terms you go to have your heart checked and you get connected to all of these monitors and so on, uh, the, the problem is the artery is getting clogged up with, with plaque. But the problem spiritually with a hard heart is that uh, we get bunged up with unbelief and rebellion. Uh, We refuse to listen to God's warnings. We become insensitive to what pleases him. And the reference in Psalm 95 uh, is to the incident in Exodus 17, 
uh, which we, we studied not that long ago, where the people uh, were crying out for water and they were hurling accusations against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And the mood turns ugly in the camp and Moses cries out to the Lord, Lord, they are almost ready to stone me. And the elements that are so dangerous, the elements that contribute towards this hardening of the heart are listed as being rebellious against God, verse 7, which is the same as testing God, verse 8. The time of testing, when your fathers tested me and for 40 years saw what I did. The rebellion. F.F. Bruce, the the late um, New Testament scholar, wrote that to put God to the test was to see how long his patience will hold out in the face of our stubbornness and unbelief. Pushing God's patience, trying him. And in addition, the Lord says, they have not known my ways. In other words, he's saying that the people of Israel were actually ignorant of God, experientially. They were unfamiliar with him. They didn't know his will. They did not know his ways. Uh, They did not know him savingly, essentially. And their unbelief showed itself when they questioned the Lord's goodness. Okay, they had no water, they were thirsty, they were parched, but they did not allow for the fact that perhaps God had some uh, good uh, reason for this, that God would supply uh, their need at the right and the appropriate time. They impugned God's goodness. When God uh, restricted their diet, so that all they had in the desert was manna, which had to be gathered daily. Uh, there was a purpose of good behind that. Deuteronomy tells us. God gave them manna uh, that they might know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But because they were unbelieving, they responded to God's leadership with complaint and rebellion instead of quiet submission. So there's a danger that we... On our part, uh, develop a rebellious spirit that we look at God's work in our lives and we think, well, God is not good in my situation. And we begin to, to test him. We rebel against him. We pull back in this area of service and that area of service. Uh, we withhold him the worship that is due to his name. And we see how far we can get in doing so. And that has terrible consequences. It had terrible consequences for the children of Israel. God decreed that they would not enter the promised land. I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Verse 11. Now the land of Canaan was the terminus for the wandering. But it was more than that. It was was a, a token of something far greater. It was almost sacramental in significance. Entering the promised land signified entering into the deep and eternal rest of God. The stakes were very high. 
those that continually put God to the test, who complained about his care, who treated his commands as though they didn't apply to themselves, who presumed on his forgiveness again and again, who came to the point they no longer trembled at the thought of displeasing him, uh, who wandered in their thinking and their serving of God, eventually showed themselves up as unbelievers. People of whom God would say, they did not know my ways. And Jesus warned his listeners that on the last day when he stood in judgment, that there would be many who would stand before him thinking that they were secure, quite confident that they would be welcomed into heaven. And he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The warning from the the exodus from the desert wanderings is so solemn and so serious because on one hand it involved so many, 600,000 lying in the desert who did not enter the promised land. And also for the fact that uh, in one sense it, it was bread and butter unbelief. Look at the three questions that uh, are asked at the end of the chapter. Verse 16, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? Not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It seems that the the writer is hammering home the the fact that they all failed, barring a few, to enter. Uh, And that it wasn't because of some kind of weird and wonderful heresy that had come into the camp. Uh, They they hadn't latched on to some, some strange doctrine. It was rebellion. It was rebellious hearts that kept them. It was unbelief which kept them from entering into the land of promise. (coughs) Not believing in the Lord, questioning his goodness, tempting his forbearance, will bring you to hell. It's as straightforward and as solemn as that. Some of the scholars think that there's a significance uh, in the the 40-year period Uh, It's widely thought that Hebrews was written before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So if that's the case, then uh, there were 40 years between the the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the writing of this letter. It's perhaps this, this sense of where they stand on the historical timeline that injects this sense of urgency. You know, is this a generation that will, that will fail to enter into God's rest just as it was with those who left Egypt? 
Perhaps it's also a warning to us as well, who are older in the faith, who have had decades to show progress in the Christian life. That the possibility of our hearts being hardened uh, is every bit as real as we go on. And that we need to take care and to to tend that heart. The remedy that uh, the writer gives us is twofold. First of all, there is an individual responsibility that we have to, to search our hearts. Verse 12, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. One of the spiritual disciplines that you don't hear people speak of very much today is self-examination. It was once very much practiced by uh, earlier generations of of Christians, and and especially in in Scotland, uh, as a preparation for communion time. To reflect on our lives, to reflect on, on the day. good thing, isn't it, to come to the end of the day perhaps and to, to meditate, to reflect upon our life that day uh, and to seek to repent specifically of the things that we have done which uh, have fallen from uh, the standards of, of, of Christian living. To be attentive to our hearts in that way. Or maybe during the day, maybe at lunchtime, as we are halfway through our day, to reflect, Lord, where am I? What have I done that I need to come and, and repent of, turn away from? And not just the, the, the obvious, deliberate, wrong turnings, but the subtler shades of, of, a, of a heart that is growing harder, that, that falling off of enthusiasm for the Lord. That early sign of losing our first love. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I knew the Lord? That that unspoken but implicit complaining heart about God's dealings. That sense of I deserve better than this. These were all part of Israel's problem. The grumbling spirit which is so destructive of Christian progress. We do need to examine ourselves. We do need to, to, to have this, this spiritual discipline as part of our Christian living. Uh, a key verse, Proverbs 4.23, Above all, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life. To ask the Lord by his Holy Spirit, to help us to examine ourselves and examine the, the movement of our heart, whether the movement of our heart is away from or towards God. So there's, there's an individual responsibility to self-examination and repentance. And then there's also the encouragement that's given to the body of Christ working together uh, as an antidote to this hardening of the heart. 
Verse 13, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's a key expression too, isn't it? Sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful. Uh, that's why it's so dangerous. It creeps in. Uh, it insinuates its way into our lives. The devil loves to masquerade as an angel of light. We find it so hard to detect the first uprisings of sin in our lives. And the Bible tells us that we need one another. We need the body of Christ. Uh, we need to encourage one another daily while to still call today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. One of the good things about our, our congregation is the way that we love to, to be with one another after church. And that's a great opportunity to, to work the word into our lives. And to be attentive to the, the scripture, not allow the opportunity to go. Uh, you know, it could be so easy to, to kind of lose out on that opportunity to share with one another what God is saying to us. And by that, we're encouraged uh, to, to keep on moving in a Godward and a heavenly direction. And then there are the opportunities that arise when we're able to have deeper and longer conversation, perhaps in our prayer triplets. I sense we need to uh, have a, a time of reviving our prayer triplets and renewing them and our commitments to one another in them because they are potentially a, a great vehicle for this exhortation of encouragement. <coughs> and there are those in our church family who flag from time to time. There are those who are on our hearts because we see them missing public worship. And what a good thing it is and, and what a very tangible way of, of showing love is to let them know that they are missed and to give that word of encouragement to them. You know, we can do that in a judgmental, censorious way, which doesn't help, but just to encourage people uh, to be with the Lord's people because this is where they'll be built up in their faith, that we need the word of God to grow. There are also, in, in this day of Technology. there are also other ways in which the, the body of Christ works as encouragement. I know some of you are in the habit of, of listening to, to podcasts or to, to sermons, uh, maybe in a car or on your phone when you're walking around. And that's, that's a really good way of, of having this word of Scripture applied in, in a real, in a practical way. Because somewhere, perhaps in another continent, a preacher of the word is encouraging you uh, out with the Lord's day to go on with the Lord, uh, to serve him with quickened pace, uh, to examine your heart. You know, none of us can grow as Christians uh, just on two services on a Sunday. Uh, this is saying that we need to encourage one another uh, every day, today. As often as, whilst it is still called today, uh, whilst the opportunity is still in front of us, there's that uh, immediacy, that imperative 
encourage one another. May God enable us to do that. Amen.